Good morning. Good morning. Good mor yeah. <laughs> Come on now. I, I feel the need this morning to do a little more stretching. So if you need to do that, you have permission. It just feels like a morning that needs a little more stretching. There you go. You can roll the neck slowly, not too fast. See if the microphone picks up my popping of my neck. <laughs> Uh, it would be really lovely to have you come over tomorrow uh, to our house for barbecue. Bring your friends. We've invited some neighbors. Uh, really love to, to have you there. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Brene Brown. Maybe just the name. Maybe some of you have read her books. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I have not read her books, but I've seen the movie. Uh, she, she put out a Netflix special recently um, that Summer and I watched this week. Tammy actually forwarded along to our council for us to watch, and it was, it was really good, very inspiring. She's uh, someone who's done a lot of research around shame and courage uh, and just has some really fantastic things to teach us about uh, kind of how we, how we approach our shame, what we do with that, and how to live bravely uh, in a world that, um, that makes that difficult sometimes. Or often. Anyways, in this Netflix special that we were watching, there's this phrase that she uh, referred to a number of times that has been a, a helpful phrase for her and I think might be a helpful framing uh, phrase for us this morning, which is this, the story I'm telling myself. Uh, and she describes this as a really helpful phrase uh, or, or introductory phrase when you're uh, facing conflict in a relationship or when you're facing a situation um, that maybe br uh, brings up some shame in you or, or just uh, brings up difficulty, right? Sort of to take a pause and a breath and to say, okay, the story that I'm telling myself right now is this. And to have the courage then to even articulate that to uh, whoever it is that you're in relationship with in that moment, the spouse or coworker or kid or whoever. And it's just this reminder that, uh, that stories actually frame how we live our lives. Uh, we really do uh, conceive of reality and what's going on in terms of a story. And sometimes that story is not entirely accurate. We have a perspective. We, we, we look at life through our own lens. And so to just acknowledge and articulate, okay, the, the story that I'm telling myself right now is, is this. Um, I, <laughs> when Summer and I were dating, maybe we're dating for about two, two and a half months in here, we had a, a weekend that we were really looking forward to. We had both signed up for this Celtic, uh, Celtic prayer spiritual retreat weekend that some folks here in Seattle were putting on, but they were hosting it somewhere else, like on one of the, one of the islands, I think. And we, we had signed up for this, and we were, we were packed, and we were ready to go. We are really looking forward to this. There was going to be a fair amount of, uh, of time just spent by ourselves, but, but also it was kind of a cool thing to experience together as this fairly newly dating couple. I was pretty excited. Uh, and we, we were packed, and I, I head over to her house. We're ready to go, and we realized we have no idea where to go. We've not received any confirmation email, and it's at some like kind of remote place on an island. right? That's the idea. We're getting away <laughs> to pray. Uh, we have no idea where to go. We look on the website. It's not there. We search our emails. Nowhere. Um, the, the, long, the, the short version of how that happened is that uh, we had signed up on one of the email accounts that we use where you're like, oh, just, this is my spam email account, right? And we never checked that one. But uh, regardless, we ended up we're like, what are we going to do with this weekend? So we ended up driving down to Bob and Denise's house. They were living just outside of Vancouver, Washington at the time. Had a weekend with them. It was lovely. But driving back, Summer got really, she got quiet. It was a quiet drive back 
And I knew what that meant. That meant she was just about to break up with me. That's what that meant. The story that I was telling myself at that moment was that this is what happens right before uh, this girl that you're interested in breaks up with you. Because that had happened. <laughs> uh, uh, after a, what I thought was a really fun date with a girl I was dating many years before uh, at Mount Rainier, we drove back from Mount Rainier in silence. And it was right before she told me, Mark, I don't love you and I don't think we should be dating. <laughs> so that was the story I was telling myself about this quiet ride back from, uh, from Baba Denise's place. But we had at least enough uh, trust in each other at that point uh, to be able to articulate that. And I said, I... This is what I'm feeling. And she was gracious enough uh, to say, that is not what's happening here. I just need some time alone. It's not about you. It's me. Um, and uh, <laughs> thank you for that. All the <laughs> but that was, uh, that was one of those moments where, and I, I kind of had to step out in faith and be like, all right, I trust that. I trust that that's true. Um, but I had to acknowledge this story that I was telling myself, right? I had to acknowledge, like, this is what I'm experiencing, and this is where it fits in this story. It fits in a story where I get dumped. That's the story that's, that's happening right now. And I was wrong, which was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Alistair McIntyre wrote this. He said, I can only answer the question of what am I to do if I answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Uh, what am I, I can only answer, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? When we come together every Sunday, one of the things that we hope is happening is that we're, we're coming in from all these different weeks, but we're reorienting us around the big G great story, right? The gospel story. Uh, we're, we're, we're being reoriented and reminded and, and experiencing anew the truth of this big story that we are a part of, that inevitably, at some point throughout our week, we have forgotten, or we have been sidetracked, or we, uh, we, we can't even see or remember what that story is that we're a part of. So part of what we do when we come together is remind ourselves of that story, experience it afresh. Right, the songs, the prayers, everything. Um, and, and here we are, we've, we've been in the book of Revelation for the last few weeks, which is the end of the biblical story, right? And it's the end, as in the future end, of all of our stories. And so I, I hope what's happening, as we're looking a little bit at the end of the story, is that we get a big picture of the full story, uh, and we understand our place in it, so that we know what to do, right? Going back to that, that, uh, that quote, that we can start to answer the question of, of what are we supposed to do, how are we supposed to live our lives, when we have a better, clearer understanding of the story or the stories that we're a part of. That impacts how we live now, right? That, so we're looking at Revelation, which is very future-oriented, um, but the, the, whole, the whole point of studying it and looking at it right now is, yes, to give us hope for the future, but also to give us some sense of how it is that we're actually supposed to live right now. So, we're going to read... From Revelation 21 through 20, through the beginning of 22. It'll be on the screen, but as we've already talked about, this is a, this is a vision and metaphor-rich passage. And so if you want to close your eyes, if you trust yourself to stay asleep with your eyes closed, stay awake with your eyes closed, <laughs> the opposite of what I just said, uh, you can do that and try to picture, try to imagine uh, what John is seeing 
uh, as he has this vision on the island of Patmos. All right, we're going to start in verse 10, I believe. And he, this is an angel that is, uh, that is guiding John through this vision. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Now the city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide, and he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, which is about 1,500, 1,500 miles. 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. That's about 200 feet. The wall was made of, pure, of jasper, and the city of pure gold is pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, I'm going to mispronounce some of these, agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl, and the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city did not, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the, lamp, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this vision that you gave to John, who wrote it down, that we might share in this vision of the future, this vision of reality, where heaven and earth meet. Spark our imagination, Lord. Help us to know the story that we are a part of. And give us hope that you are making all things new. Amen. Amen. 
It's a long passage, very visually vibrant and descriptive, right? I was trying to think of, especially early on, uh, uh, well, so, so last week, last week we got our initial look at this marriage of, of heaven and earth, right? New Jerusalem coming, descending, meeting earth, a renewed earth. Um, and we talked about how John, in, this, in his first go-round, he kind of describes it in the via negativa, right? He, he describes it by what is not there. There's no sea, right, which represents chaos and, and kind of out of controlness. There's, there's none of that anymore. Uh, and there's no death. There's no mourning, no, no pain, no crying. All of that is gone. Uh, but now he starts to get a little more descriptive, a little more just a good reminder that we are in the realm of metaphors, uh, and not so much in the realm of the literal. But this does not mean that we are not in the realm of truth and reality. So that's important to remember as we, as we see these incredible uh, visions. Um, I, was, I was reflecting on how he opens, just talking about this, everything's shining, right? That's just, you get the sense that everything's shining, shimmering, splendid. And I was like, oh yeah, it's a whole new world. Anybody? Aladdin? It's not often you get to have an Aladdin reference in a sermon. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I think that's the only joke that I have. Um, so <laughs> it's just this, like, this, this um, amazing vision of, of, this, of this city. And then he starts to get into some of the more technical measurements, right? So he says, well, there's these, three, there's these four gates, uh, and the 12 tribes of Israel's names are written on them. And then there's 12 foundations that bear the name of the 12 apostles. And I think what we'll start to see uh, as he continues to describe this city is that this is no longer a Jerusalem that is meant just for the Jewish people. This is no longer a Jerusalem that's just for the Israelites. This is worldwide in its scope and in its, and in its size. So we've got the, we, but well, we haven't forgotten God's initial promise to his people. We haven't got, got forgotten God's initial promise to the Israelites. Their names are represented here, as are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And from, uh, from those apostles, then the gospel has been spread out to the whole known world, which is about the size of this city. So he's describing a city that's this giant cube, uh, 1,400 miles high, long, and wide. Again, think in terms of metaphor here. Uh, this is uh, the, the 12 foundations and the 12 stones. 12 represents this number of completeness and wholeness. This city is about the size of the known world at that time, right? This 1,400 miles, about kind of uh, Middle East to Middle Europe. Like, we're, that's ballpark what we're looking at here. Um, and it's this perfect cube. It just is, it's complete. Nothing is lacking. There is room for everyone. And there's no temple which had been the, the previous kind of marker of Jerusalem. Like, this is what Jerusalem was known for. It It was the temple, which is where God's presence dwelled. And there's no temple building here, because God's very presence and the Lamb uh, is the temple. Uh, there, people are able to enjoy the very presence of God in this city. There's no sun, because the Lord God and the Lamb give it light. The gates are always open, right? There's no fear. There's no worry. No anxiety. These are things that the gates were designed to keep out, right? Those people that would come in and rob, uh, those other people, right? People that would cause us fear in whatever capacity we could imagine it. No need for that here. Gates are always open. And then who's coming into those gates? But 
the kings of the nations and the nations themselves. And what are they bringing? They're bringing their glory, their honor, and their splendor. This is a diverse, diverse vision of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. The, uh, the end of chapter 21 uh, ends with uh, kind of a, a harder word about how there's nothing impure in this city. The only things that come in are, are those whose names are written in the, in the book of life, the book of the Lamb. And it's a bit of a warning, and I think it's intended to, to be taken as such, but a warning not that leads us to simply saying, oh, I'm so glad that's me and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in and they're out. It's a warning, I think, that is intended as an invitation. Right? A warning that is, that is intended to say, come, there, there, there's room. We've established that there's room for everyone. So come to the Lamb. Come and have your name written in the book of the Lamb. Then we get to chapter 22. And the, the language in chapter 22 takes us back to Genesis. I don't know if you caught this, but there's, there's conversation here about uh, a tree of life about a river of life, about the curse that is no more. That's another thing that's completely gone. And, and the language here is really meant to bring us back to the creation story. Where God sets Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's all very good. And he gives them the tree of life, and he says, actually, this tree you can eat as much of as you want. But then we know the rest of that story, right? We know, we know the fall. We know the entrance of sin in the world and the twisting effects that it had. And the curse, and the undoing of that curse has been God's task and his work and his vision for the world ever since Genesis 3. And here we see the completion of that work, that the curse, which has been humanity's struggle for generation upon generation, is no more. It's done away with. It's this flourishing, fruitful city. The, the striking image, I mean, this is, again, where our, our ability to accurately describe, or John's ability to accurately describe what he's seeing kind of runs up against the limits of our language. He, he describes a tree, yet it's on both sides of the river. It's, it's one tree, but it's on both sides, and it, and it bears fruit every month. It's constantly fruitful. And then one of my favorite images is that the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. Doesn't that make your heart leap, having read anything in the news recently? <laughs> that the future hope of God, the future work of God involves the healing of the nations. And I think that we, we see that uh, earlier in all these nations bringing in their glory, bringing in their honor into the city. It's an interesting image. And I think that's one of my, one of my takeaways from this passage, is that diversity and uh, both racially and, and culturally, diversity does not diminish the glory of God, but may actually add to it. It's part of what God uh, wants to see. It's part of what gives him delight, is diversity, difference. I, uh, as the weather has been a little bit nicer, I've been in the backyard a little bit more and marveling at the, all the different birds that will come in at various times and just sort of pick around and see what they can find and I'm not a bird person in that I don't know what kind they are. They have wings. Uh, most of them are, uh, but they're nonetheless, I, they're different, right? They're all, and, and this kind of diversity, we see it in creation. Um, we have these bees that summer 
uh, I almost said planted. You brought them in and they're come there doing their work. They're mason bees. And uh, they're different from all these other kinds of bees. And they look different. Um, and this, this diversity that we see in creation is God's desire for his world. There was, uh, there was an article that uh, I think some of you may have read that came out. It's on the, the Office of Social Justice, part of our denomination. It's been posting some, some blogs. And one of them that was recently written was written by uh, a guy who works for our denomination. He's the director of, of race relations. Uh, and he tells his story about how he came uh, how he came to faith and how he came to the church. He's an African-American man, came to part, got to be part of the CRC church in Chicago because they, um, they had a basketball court in their church and um, became a member, became, uh, you know, came to faith in Christ, started to sense this call to ministry. And then as he's become part of our denomination for a while, and I recognize some of you uh, have very little connection to our denomination, and that's totally fine. Some of you are deeply connected, and that's fine too. But uh, he started to do more, more research into the history of the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, and he came across this, this paper from the 50s that had this line in it, that our strength uh, lies in our isolation. That that was the perspective that was fueling um, the decisions and the direction of the denomination at that time. Uh, that maybe not everyone, but it was certainly a more prevalent perspective in the, within the denomination, that our strength is in our isolation, our ability to protect ourselves from the harmful influences of culture, um, which then also led to from the harmful influences of people different than us, different races, different cultures. And he just was reflecting on, on the... Um, just how that perspective has, in fact, shaped our denomination and the need that we have uh, to break free from that. That, in fact, our strength is not in our isolation. And I think that's the image of heaven meeting earth here in Revelation 21 and 22 that we see, that it is the, the profound diversity of the nations coming into the city, bringing with them their, the things of their culture, right? The, the, the things that are beautiful and valuable that, they have, that, that God has given them skill to create, uh, and to make and contribute to this world, that they bring with them those things into the city. And that that does not diminish God's glory, but actually participates in it. So I think there's a question there, right? That uh, do we see cultural and racial diversity as, as a loss or as actually something that is beautiful and part of the world that God is bringing into existence? And then how do we participate with that now, right? If that's the end, if that's the end of the story, this image of this city, uh, that begs a lot of questions about, okay, how do we embrace <laughs> that now? How do we live so that uh, we're, we're giving people a foretaste of what's to come? And if I had the magic bullet for that, I would share it with you. <laughs> but I think that the beginning place is at least asking that question, right? And, and having this vision, that John gives us of the new heavens and the new earth and the diversity that is present there. I think another uh, takeaway that I have from, from this passage, and this, this again has to do with this understanding of the stories that we tell ourselves, the understanding the stories that we find ourselves in and our place in those stories. Hopefully, as we are more and more familiar with God's great gospel story, right, creation, fall, redemption in Christ, the ultimate renewal of all things, as we understand our place in that story, 
uh, we start to see with a little more of a critical eye the other stories that are shaping us, the other stories that our world would tell us, uh, the other stories that sometimes we tell ourselves that need correcting by the gospel. And hopefully we grow in our discernment of the difference, right? We can start to more clearly see where there's disconnect, where there's conflict. I think it's something about, or something like what Paul says in Romans 12, and this is in the context of of worship, of offering our bodies as this living sacrifice. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't give yourself so much to the stories of this world that they become your story. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Be familiar, live, get God's story, the big story into you so that you know that this actually is your story. This is the true story. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. You'll be able to discern as you receive you know, messages and advertising, as you, stories you tell yourself, as, as we read the news. You'll be able to discern better, okay, what is, a, what is a story of the world and what is, what is something of God's story here? There's, like a, there's a cultural critic that needs to grow in us, right? Not a critic in that we, the culture is bad and we don't participate in it, but a discern, discernment, that's the word. Uh, I, worked, I was a youth intern at University Presbyterian Church right after college, and I worked with a youth pastor named Jeff Town. Actually, Jeff Aiken, now my brother-in-law, he and I were interns together uh, many years ago. And the youth pastor that we worked with, and I may have shared this story here before, but he would record the Super Bowl on this technology called VHS tape, if you're familiar with that. He would record the Super Bowl on it, and then he would edit out the game so that all you had were the ads. And then the following youth group, uh, we would watch those ads together. And uh, he didn't use the language of story, like what's the story? Um, But this is the question that he would ask. What is the good life according to this ad? What's the good life that's being sold to you? What's the story that's being told that's behind this advertisement, right? There's There's a story here. There's a story of our purpose, our identity, our value. What's, what's important in life? There's a story that's being told here underneath this commercial. How, how do we discern that? How, how do we, what, you know, what do you see here? And it was a great teaching tool. It formed me, and I trusted of these youth that have gone through this exercise so that as they go through life, they become a little more discerning of the variety of stories that are being told to them and sold to them. What's the good life? What's the, what's the story that you find yourself a part of. And maybe it's one that you tell yourself, right? I think we're, we're just as adept at telling ourselves false stories as the media is or the world or whoever's out there. We're pretty good at that as, uh, on our own as well. Maybe there's a story that you were living into this morning. Right? Maybe you're beating yourself up because, I don't know, something's not going the way that you thought it would. Right? Your life doesn't look like you thought it would look at this point in life. Which is probably true for each one of us here in some capacity. Well, there's a story there, right? There's a story about what you thought life would look like or should look like. 
And in some way, it's probably not measuring up to that story that you're telling. Um, so what do you do with that? Or perhaps you, where you are right now, are actually part of a bigger story. Something that is maybe a little bit harder to see on the surface, but something that is more true, <coughs> something that is, is more accurate to who you are and to what God is doing in and through you and in and through this world. This vision from John gives us the end of that story. This vision of a world uh, without chaos, sin, death, no more curse. And it is a culturally and racially rich and diverse world. And it is beautiful. And God's glory fills it. So I think I want to leave us this morning simply with that, that question of, of what story or stories do you find yourself a part? And if it's not the, 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 the big G gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, and the ultimate renewal of all things, then, then what is it? And how, how would you discern that story in light of the great G gospel story?